Well, good morning. That passage that Missy read was a portion of the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. And as I was thinking on it and reflecting on it, I told Tony just a moment ago, uh, that is a psalm that could be easily prayed and heard on the lips of Jesus. He is the quintessential servant. Uh, He is the one that the world raged against, and yet every step of the way, he honored and obeyed the law, the commandments, the statutes, the precepts of the Lord. So I would encourage you sometime. It'll take you about uh, 30 minutes. Uh, But go sometime and read Psalm 119, all 176 verses. And as you hear the psalmist writing, uh, put the Lord Jesus in the place of the one praying and singing Psalm 119. And then go back a second time, and as those who follow him, put yourself in the place of the psalmist and voice those same words uh, to the Lord. It is a powerful, powerful meditation upon the perfection uh, and the blessedness of God's Word, which is what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. I want to invite you to find in your Bible the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 10 and going through verse 17. 2 Timothy is toward the end of the New Testament. It is Paul's last letter that he ever wrote, part of what we call the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and the book of Titus. And because it was his last letter, uh, he was going to emphasize things that greatly mattered to him. Uh, He was in prison. Uh, We don't know for sure, but many believe he was in what is known as the Mamertine Dungeon in Rome. Uh, He was cold, as we learn from the fourth chapter. He did not expect uh, to survive much longer. He knew that his execution uh, was impending. So think about it. If you knew that you were going to die and you had the opportunity to write a letter to someone that you greatly love, someone you've invested in, someone you care for, someone who is closer to you than a brother, what might be the type of things that you would say to them? Well, this is what Paul said to his young son in the ministry, Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and themselves being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." And then what is probably the most important verse in all of the Bible concerning the Bible's own testimony and witness to its inspiration, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for four things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Not far from here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, uh, there is a very well-known professor by the name of Bart Ehrman. Uh, Bart Ehrman is a professor of religion at UNC, though interestingly, he is himself today a professing agnostic. Uh, He at one time was an evangelical Christian, uh, claimed to believe in the absolute truthfulness and authority of the Word of God. Because of various events in his life, he began to drift away from his evangelical convictions and ultimately walked away from the faith altogether. But he is a very popular professor of religion at UNC. Uh, He is very gifted in terms of his persuasiveness. He's a very articulate individual. And uh, he has a goal in life, and his goal is to deconvert 
persons from Christianity. He is basically an evangelist for agnosticism. And of course, he is unfortunately quite successful because too many who sit in his classes who profess to be Christians are actually not Christians at all. And then there are others who have such a shallow, uh, immature, impotent faith, they are not prepared for the onslaught that he fires. And by the end of the semester, many of them walk away from the faith that they once held dearly. One of the things he does to begin to set the trap uh, that he is very good at closing on unsuspecting students is he will begin a semester and he'll ask this question of his students. How many of you believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? And according to his own testimony, Dr. Ehrman has said, virtually every hand, not all, but the vast majority of hands will go up saying, yes, I believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Then he'll follow up with a second question that at first seems to be unrelated, but he'll ask this, how many of you have read, and he will select a popular novel, and so in recent years he has asked, how many of you have read uh, The Hunger Games by Susan Collins? And again, a vast majority, he says almost all the hands will go up. Then he asked a third question. How many of you have read the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation? Virtually no hand goes up. And then he delivers his knockout punch. He says, I can understand why you would read Collins' book. It is entertaining. But if you really believed God wrote a book, then wouldn't you want to read it? My good friend and colleague, Tony Morita, who will be the last speaker today, well says, and I quote, Bart Ehrman exposes a major problem. He highlights how those raised in a culturally Christian setting have some major inconsistencies with what they say, with what they do. We show what we believe about the Bible by how we use the Bible, not merely by what we say about the Bible. And I would simply add to Tony's insightful statement, we show what we believe about the Bible by the way we love the Bible. And so what I want to do this morning is take my time and give you five reasons why it is that I believe we should love and cherish the Word of God. You heard it read very well a moment ago from Psalm 119, but I want us to hear what the Apostle Paul says as he's looking toward the end of his life, writing his final letter to his son in the ministry. This is what is on his heart. This is what burdens him. This is what concerns him. I think what he had for Timothy is equally valuable for you and for me this morning. So number one, I believe we should love the Word of God because it will prepare you to face persecution. Paul begins there in verse 10 by noting the example that he has set for Timothy, highlighting no less than nine different aspects of the example that he has left for Timothy in terms of his life and ministry. Look at verse 10. You yourselves, it is actually a very intensive form in the original language, you yourselves have followed, and you'll see the word my, 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 again and again and again. What had Timothy seen? What had Timothy followed in terms of the life of the Apostle Paul? Well, he says, you have followed my teaching. You have followed my conduct. You have followed my aim, my goal, my priorities in life. You have followed my faith. You have followed my patience. You have followed my love. You have followed my perseverance, my endurance, my steadfastness. And then a word that occurs three times in our passage, you have also followed my persecutions and sufferings. And then he specifies, and you can find these located and noted in terms of their historical happening in the book of Acts. You also followed my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Now watch Paul's argument. 
which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a life in Christ Jesus, and you know you almost expect him to say, will likewise be rescued from the persecutions, but he doesn't say that. He just simply says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so Paul wants us to understand this morning that if we are indeed serious about our walk with Christ, If we are indeed serious about living our lives for his glory, you just simply need to understand and anticipate you are going to face opposition. You are going to be persecuted. Now, we need to be clear. In our particular cultural context, there are at this point in time no uh, uh, concerns about being uh, arrested. Uh, There are no concerns about being suddenly taken out of our homes and taken somewhere and being physically abused. Uh, There's no concerns like many of our brothers and sisters around the world today who know that living for Christ puts their life on the line every single day. That's not our particular context. No, ours is an easier one. Let's just be honest. I'm not really interested in hearing you whine about how people mistreat you and hear you whine about how people oppose you. Bless your heart. Somebody sent me an ugly email. Somebody said something unkind to me in a tweet. Someone actually got in my face and made fun of me and mocked me about my Christian faith. Now, I want to be clear, that certainly is a form of persecution. It is a form of opposition. And the fact of the matter is, you should not be surprised by it. As we move into the 21st century, we are living in an increasingly uh, anti-Christian context. Uh, And I agree with what D.A. said last night. It's not post-Christian. It's pre-Christian. You are going to engage people in your lives in particular that have absolutely no grounding or moorings in the Bible. Many of them have never even read the Bible one time. They know nothing about Adam and Eve. They know nothing about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They know nothing about Moses. They know nothing about Jesus and the apostles. All of that means absolutely nothing to them, which I think is a glorious, wonderful opportunity for mission and evangelism. But you are going to face opposition. People are going to mock you. People are going to ridicule you. And the Bible is that which prepares you because it warns you it's coming. And it also equips you to face persecution in a good, healthy, godly, Christ-honoring way. Which leads me to our second observation, which is connected to the first. Yes, we love the Word of God because it will prepare you to face persecution. But we also love the Word of God because it will protect you from false teachers. Look at what he says there in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while in the process of evil people and imposters who will come on the scene going from bad to worse. Now, don't miss this. Deceiving and they themselves being deceived. Now, I want to be very practical for a moment and be very uh, helpful to you as you engage the various ideologies and philosophies and religious worldviews that are out there. Let me raise a question. What do cults and false teachers do? What do cults as well as false teachers, what do they do? And the answer is they do math. They do math. You say, what do you mean they do math? All cults, all false teachers will add, they will subtract, they will multiply, and they'll divide. You say, how so? First of all, all cults and false teachers add. They will add by a prophet, they will add by a pen, they will add by Uh, exalting reason above revelation, or they will add by tradition. Let me take as a test case for our purposes this morning the the non-Christian cult of Mormonism. Now, if you're here today and you happen to be a Mormon, I am thrilled that you're here. I'm grateful that you're here. But the fact of the matter is Mormonism as a body of doctrine is absolutely 
completely and totally inconsistent with orthodox, historic, evangelical, Bible, Christianity. The two are incompatible. The two will not match up and go together. You say, why? Well, let's just take this first step. They add, what does Mormonism teach in terms of your authority? They teach that you need as a source of religious authority, the Bible plus the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, the doctrines and the covenants, and any revelatory pronouncement that comes out of Salt Lake City from the president of the Mormon church. And so they will add to the Bible in terms of your source of authority. We've just observed the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And one of the battle cries of the Reformation of Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox and the Anabaptists was sola scriptura, scripture alone. Our authority for faith and practice is the Bible and the Bible alone. But also when it comes to those in the universities, uh, your professors, uh, they will add... And what they will do is say, read the Bible as a source of religious experiences from ancient persons, but always put the Bible under the judgment of reason, the judgment of experience. And that is what they will argue that you can trust and rely upon. And so they add to the Bible. But secondly, they subtract. And how do they subtract? All false teaching subtracts from the person and the work of Jesus Christ without exception, without exception, without exception. Every false teaching and cult will deny the eternal deity of the Son. Without exception, they will deny the eternal deity of the Son. Furthermore, they will also deny that his work on the cross and his bodily resurrection in and of itself is enough and sufficient for salvation. Uh, what they will say is what Jesus did uh, was good, but you need to add to it. And by adding to the cross, you always subtract from the cross. So they add, they subtract. Number three, they multiply. And again, without exception, they will multiply the requirements of salvation. Uh, every false religion in the world today. Every cult that diverts from the truth of the Bible will have a works salvation theology. Oh, yes, they may say that you are saved by faith, but they will always then come along and multiply and say, and, and they have another list of things you must add to your faith in Christ. And so they have a work salvation and they multiply the requirements for our salvation. Then finally, they divide. And when they get into fellowships, they will divide the harmony and the fellowship of local churches. They will split them. They will cause factions within them. That's why, again, without being ugly or unkind, we must be vigilant to uh, affirm and defend the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And we cannot be wishy-washy. Uh, we cannot be lackadaisical when it comes to false teaching with respect to those foundational bedrock doctrines of the Bible. Now, let's also bring balance here. Look again at the text because he says these false teachers are evil people. Yes, they are imposters. They often come, as Jesus said, as wolves in sheep's clothing. He says what they do will only increase from bad to worse. Now, don't miss this deceiving and being deceived. In other words, if you put those two things together, you recognize that you must have on the one hand a posture of defensiveness against false teaching. On the other hand, though, you also understand you should have a posture of compassion toward false teachers. You say, why? Because they themselves are deceived. They've been blinded by the God of this world, Satan himself. They don't see things accurately. They don't see things truthfully. They themselves have been fooled. And so, yes, we cannot negotiate with their false teaching. At the same time, we do not act ugly or unkind, but loving and compassionate, recognizing they themselves have been deceived by their own false teaching. So why do we love the Bible? I'll tell you, because it prepares us to face persecution. Why do we love the Bible? Because it will protect us from false teachers. 
But number three, why do we love the Bible? We love the Word of God because it is what God uses to bring us to Jesus. Look at what he says there in verse 14. But as for you, in contrast to these false teachers, as for you, uh, don't be deceived. Don't yourself become a deceiver, but continue. How do I keep from being deceived? Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. St. Augustine, the great church father, said, The Holy Scriptures... They are our letters from home. I like that. And here in verses 14 and 15, Timothy is taught and reminded by Paul from whom he learned the Bible, and he is taught by Paul to stay with the stuff. Look again at what he says. As for you, continue in first what you've learned. Secondly, what you have come to firmly believe. It is now a settled reality in your life. Now, where did you learn these things and how did you come to believe? Well, you know from whom you learned it and how from childhood. Now, if you go back to chapter one and verse six, you will learn that Timothy had learned what to believe and Timothy had been taught what to believe from his grandmother Lois and from his mother Eunice. And Paul is simply saying to him, don't forget what you learned from your mama and your grandmama. Don't forget what you learned. Now hear me, don't forget what you learned from those who love you the most. I can so readily identify with what uh, Paul writes here. If you were to ask me this morning, uh, Danny, how did you become a Christian? How did you learn the faith? Who were your initial teachers of God's Word? That's easy. It was my mama, Emmalou Aiken, and it was my granddaddy, my granddaddy Galloway. They taught me to love Jesus, they taught me the Bible. They shared the gospel with me. And as a nine, 10 year old boy, I put my faith and trust in Christ. And I did so primarily because of the influence of a granddaddy who loved me dearly and a mama who loved me like you could never imagine. And because of that, I came to know Christ. Now, since that time, I've gone to college, I've gone to seminary, I've gone to graduate school, I've studied under some very brilliant men, some very brilliant women, some believers, some unbelievers. But in all of that, you know what? I've never moved away from what I was taught by my granddaddy and my mama. My faith may be deeper, but my faith hasn't changed. And my love for Christ, and my love for the Bible, and my love for the church, and my love for the lost, I got it first and foremost from those who love me most. Now, almost all of you in this room will be in a college or a university. And you'll be confronted in your classrooms by some very, very smart people. But let me just say this, and I'll move on. They don't love you like your mama does. They don't love you like your daddy does. They don't love you like your grandparents do. And I would challenge you to always keep close to heart the teachings that you received from those who love you the most. One of my dearest friends and heroes is a man by the name of Timothy George. Timothy George has a PhD from Harvard. He is a very, very smart individual. But if you met Dr. George and you were to say, well, Dr. George, who was the most shaping influence in your life with respect to your Christian convictions and your Christian life, he would say, that's easy. It was my grandmother who taught me the Word of God as I sat on her knee as a little boy. So Paul says, don't move away from those that taught you, knowing from whom you learned it. And then look at what he says in verse 15, that from childhood, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in 
Christ Jesus. Now, don't miss this. When Paul uses that phrase, sacred writings, what is he talking about? Answer, he is talking about the Old Testament. There is no New Testament yet when Paul writes 2 Timothy. And so what Paul is actually saying, don't miss this, is you were taught the doctrine of salvation. You were made wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And what was the source that God used through your grandmother and your mother? It was was the Old Testament scriptures. Around here, we are fond of saying, never interpret the Old Testament like a Jewish rabbi. Why? Because all of the Bible is Christian scripture. Jesus is the hero of the whole Bible from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22. He is in every book of the Bible. He is in every chapter of the Bible. And if you don't see Jesus in all of Scripture, then you as of yet have not been taught how to rightly read the Word of God. You were taught the gospel, the sacred writings, the Old Testament, and that is how you came to faith in Jesus Christ. That's why Don Carson, uh, a wonderful uh, teacher at Trinity Evangelical, says it so well, quote, the entire Bible pivots on one weekend in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. And when you read all of the Bible through the death, burial, and resurrect of Jesus Christ, you come to understand why Jesus would say in John chapter 5 and verse 39, all of Scripture witnesses and testifies to me. And folks, let me just say this and we'll move on. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you are a Christian because someone shared with you the Bible. No one in this room came to Christ apart from the Word of God. No one in this room came to salvation apart from the Bible. Somehow, some way, the Bible wound up in your hand, and it is the Bible and the Bible alone that God uses to bring us to faith in Jesus. Number four, we should love the Word of God because it is divinely inspired. I mentioned a moment ago that I think this is the most important verse in the Bible concerning its own inspiration, but there's a danger here. Now listen to me. In this day and age, we have a lot of people, hear me, that will use our vocabulary, but they don't use our dictionary. And I'm talking in terms of important theological ideas. They will use our vocabulary. They use the same words we use, but they do not mean by those words what you think they mean, and that's how they can be deceivers and be themselves deceived. That's how they can be characterized, as Paul characterized them, as imposters. So, just to enter into my classroom for just a moment. Because if you were to come to Southeastern Seminary or the college at Southeastern, uh, you'd be required to take a class called Christian Theology. And in that class of Christian theology, we'd look at the major doctrines of the Bible. And one of the doctrines we would look at is the doctrine of revelation. And we would talk about how God has revealed himself naturally uh, through creation and conscience. But then we would also talk about how God has revealed himself supernaturally through Christ and the scriptures. And when we talk about the doctrine of the Bible... We would inform you about some of the different ideas that are circulating out there in the marketplace when people talk about what they mean by the inspiration of the Bible. So, for example, number one, there is what we call the liberal perspective on inspiration. What do they mean by that? They mean by that that the Bible is not inspired, but the Bible is inspiring. The Bible is not inspired... But the Bible is inspiring. When I was in graduate school at the University of Texas working on my PhD, I took a class one semester called Faith and Reason. And uh, the professor was a uh, former Jesuit priest who, as he said on the first day of class, and I quote, when I could no longer peddle the product, I gave up the business. When I could no longer peddle the product, I gave up the business. And in essence, he left the priesthood and walked away from Christianity and became involved in a higher education there in a, a secular school. And so one night in class, he was trying to make an argument for how you could still have a sort of Christian faith in this anti-supernatural, uh, postmodern 20, 21st century context. 
And uh, one of the young ladies in the class uh, that was not, you know, a, a theologian, she was not seminary trained, but she was quite perceptive. She said, well, uh, Dr. Porter, do you believe the Bible is inspired? And with a smirk on his face, he said, well, yes, I believe the Bible is inspired. I think it's probably the most inspiring book I have ever read. Why, it's even more inspiring than Shakespeare. Well, she picked up on what he was saying and what he was doing. And so she came back and said, well, I have a second question. Do you believe in the virgin birth? And he responded, are you talking theologically or historically, scientifically? She said, I didn't know there was a difference. He said, oh, there's a big difference. And this is, again, almost verbatim. If you're asking me, do I believe in the virgin birth as a theological construct that was used by the early church to emphasize that Jesus was an important person, yes, I can affirm the virgin birth as a theological construct for the church. But if you're asking me, do I believe in the virgin birth as a historical scientific fact, hell no. Because things like that don't happen. Now, if you engaged Tom Porter in a conversation about the Bible, he might use the word inspiration or the word inspiring, but he does not mean by that what we mean by that. A second view, the neo-orthodox view. Neo-orthodoxy says the Bible is not the Word of God, but it can become the Word of God to you in some kind of existential and subjective encounter. This is the teachings of men like Karl Barth, uh, Emil Bruner. They would not say the Bible is God's Word, but the Bible can become God's Word to you as you engage it in a religious, spiritual kind of act. A third view, the neo-evangelical view, the neo-evangelical view. The Bible is not the Word of God, but the Bible contains the Word of God. And within this particular camp, you'll even have people that will talk about degrees of inspiration. So they'll say something like this. Well, the, clearly the most inspired parts of the Bible are the words of Jesus. And they will say things like this. The words of Jesus are more inspiring than the words of Paul. The words of Jesus have greater significance than the writings of Peter. The, the words of Jesus are more important than, say, the writings of David or Moses. And they will, in many cases, try to set parts of the Bible against other parts of the Bible so that the Bible, in essence, is inspired in spots. A friend of mine calls this Dalmatian theology. The Bible is inspired in spots, but unfortunately, we need inspired spot spotters to tell us which spots are inspired and which spots are not. And here's the problem. You can't get any to agree. So it falters right at the start because of its methodology. But then finally, and most importantly, and the one that I pray with all of my heart, you will embrace in this room, it is the orthodox, historic, evangelical view, which simply says the Bible is the Word of God. It is revelation. It does not become God's Word to you. It is not that which contains the Word of God. It is not simply inspiring. No, the Bible is the Word of God. That's why he says in chapter 3 and verse 16, all Scripture, not some Scripture, not most Scripture, all Scripture is, some translations say, inspired by God. I really like the ESV. All Scripture is literally the breathing out by God. In other words, all of the Bible came, uh, using an anthropomorphism, all of the Bible came out from the very mouth of our God. Now, God did give us His Word through human instrumentality, which is why I like to say when people ask me, well, all right, Danny, how would you summarize then what you believe and what you think about the Bible? I can do it in this way. The Bible is the Word of God written in the words of men. That's what the Bible is. It is, first and foremost, the Word of God, but it is written in the words of men. Therefore, it is a 100% divine book, 
And it is a 100% human book. And by the way, there's a wonderful analogy here. We call it the Christological analogy. There's a, a, a similarity between the living word and the written word. You say, what do you mean, Danny? Well, let's do a little theology. Take the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. How much of the Lord Jesus is God? Answer, 100%. How much of the Lord Jesus is human? Answer, 100%. He is fully human, fully divine, united in one person. All right, let's move to the written word of God. How much of the Bible is divine? 100%. How much of the Bible is human? 100%. It is a fully human book, a fully divine book. And as the living word is united in one person, the Bible is united in one written revelation. Southern Baptists, and many of you are Southern Baptists, went through a war over the Bible in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, up to about the year 2000. And in 2000, we settled in terms of a confession of faith, our full affirmation of the Bible as completely true and trustworthy. Well, Southeastern Seminary, for example, used to be a very liberal school theologically. If you had come here in the 1960s, not one single professor would have told you that he believed in the full truthfulness and authority of the Bible. They would not have used words like, well, I believe the Bible is infallible. I believe the Bible is inerrant. I believe the Bible is verbally inspired. I believe in the plenary inspiration of the Bible. They would have used none of those kinds of words. And God in his good grace has turned our school around so that now all of our professors believe all of that. Well, in 1996... Uh, God called me to go to Southern Seminary for about eight years as a dean and vice president. And so I moved to Louisville, Kentucky in 1996. And one of my goals as I got there in Southern Seminary at that time was in a massive war again over the Bible. And there was a massive, massive uh, disconnect between the trustees and the faculty. And the faculty was still predominantly filled by those who fall into that liberal category or that neo-orthodox category in terms of what they believe about the Bible. Well, I wanted to at least get to know all these persons and, and, and love them, even if I did disagree with them. And so I remember one day going out to lunch with a New Testament professor who was known for his very radical views when it came to the Bible. In fact, he had actually said in class on a number of occasions that he was not even sure that Jesus rose from the dead. And let me be very clear. If you do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you cannot be a Christian. If you do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead, it is impossible for you to be a born-again Christian. Well, we sit down to have lunch, and he looks at me, and uh, he said, uh, Dr. Aiken, can I ask you a question? And I said, well, sure you can. He said, why do you think the way you think? He said, I mean, you are educated. You have a PhD from a very fine university. I just don't understand how you can still believe the Bible is God's inerrant and infallible word. And, I, and then he called himself and he said, I'm sorry. That sounds so condescending. I don't mean to be condescending. I, I'm just curious. And so I said to him, well, I'm not offended by your question at all, and I'll be glad to answer it. I said, I don't know that you'll be all that impressed with my answer, but I'll tell you why I believe the Bible is completely true. It's infallible and inerrant. I said two reasons. Number one, when I was 10 years old, I got saved. And getting converted changed the way I look at life, and it's impacted my worldview ever since. I said, but number two, when I was about 19 years old, I recommitted my life to Christ very quickly. I didn't walk with Christ as a teenager. Nobody when I was in high school knew that I was a Christian, and I'm ashamed of that. But God really got a hold of my life when I was 19, and I fell in love with, with Jesus, and I fell in love with the Bible all over again. And it's very simple, but I, I want you to hear me what I say now. Because of that, I wanted to be like Jesus in every way. I wanted to act like Jesus as much as I could, and I wanted to think like Jesus thinks about everything. And so I said to this man, when you go to the Bible, you know what you discover? You discover that Jesus believed all of it. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, not a letter or a part of a letter will pass away until all of it is fulfilled. 
Jesus said in John 10, 35, the scriptures, they cannot be broken. Jesus said in John 17, 17, in his high priestly prayer to his father, your word is true. And then I said, I said, uh, and I'll just tell you his first name. I said, Jim, you went to Germany and studied under the famous German theologian, Rudolf Bultmann. You say, well, who in the heck is Rudolf Bultmann? Well, just in a nutshell, he was the most influential New Testament scholar of the last century. He gave us a way of approaching the Bible called demythologizing, which bottom line means every time you see something supernatural in the Bible, you kick it to the curb and you simply embrace and believe what's left. So he believed in no miracles, thus he believed in no virgin birth, no walking on the water, no raising Lazarus from the dead. He does not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He believes that somewhere in Galilee today, his bones are rotting. And so I said to uh, Jim, I said, you studied with Bultmann, didn't you? And he said, yes, I did. And he got a big smile on his face. And I said, well, you know, I've read Bultmann. And Bultmann said, Jesus had the same view of the Bible as any first century Jew. In fact, Bultmann said that Jesus believed all of the scriptures to be the very word of God. I said, Jim, the only difference between Bultmann and me is he thinks Jesus was wrong. I think Jesus was right. And I said, Jim, if he rose from the dead, then he's God and he's right about everything. And this very smart New Testament scholar looked at me and said, and I quote, I have never thought about it like that before. That does make a lot of sense. And so folks, I believe the Bible is true and trustworthy because Jesus said it is true and trustworthy in Matthew and in John. I believe the Bible is true and trustworthy because Paul said it is true and trustworthy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. I believe the Bible is true and trustworthy because Peter said so in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and verse 21. And so let me say this, and I'll move to our final point. If you ever get to a place in your life, now hear me, if you ever get to a place in your life where you no longer believe the Bible is indeed the infallible, inerrant, completely true and trustworthy Word of God, just realize you're saying two things. Number one, you're saying that when it comes to the Bible, Jesus was wrong. And you're saying, number two, when it comes to understanding what the Bible is, I'm smarter than Jesus. And I would submit to you, neither one of those is a very wise place to go. Now, if you'd like to look into this more in the days ahead, I want to commend a book to you, and then we'll go to our final point. But a man by the name of John Wenham wrote an outstanding book some years ago called Christ and the Bible, and he makes it absolutely crystal clear that Jesus, without any equivocation, believed in the absolute, complete, and total trustworthiness and inspiration of God's Word. It's not a long book. It's well written. So pick that up, and you'll have an even stronger argument than the one I've just tried to make. Number five, we love the Word of God because God will use it to equip you for your ministry, the latter of verse 16 and verse 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for four things. Number one, for teaching. Number two, for reproof. Number three, for correction. Number four, for training in righteousness that to this end that the man of God, the woman of God, the one who follows Jesus may be competent. The idea is uh, uh, mature and complete, thoroughly equipped, fully equipped for every good work. Charles Spurgeon famously said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. I like that, rightly understood. But I have a second statement that follows it, and that is this. Every Christian is either a minister or an imposter. Now, don't under, misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that God has called every one of you in this room to be a pastor. I'm not saying that. 
I'm not saying God's called you to be a pastor or a missionary or an evangelist or whatever. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is when God saved you, God gave you spiritual gifts. And when God saved you, God also set you on a path where you yourself are called to be a faithful minister. Some of you will minister magnificently in the workplace. Some of you will minister magnificently in the universities and the colleges. Some of you will minister magnificently in your home. Uh, Many of you women will be like my wonderful wife, Charlotte, who raised four sons who loved Jesus. And she poured her life and she was equipped by God to minister in particular to those four boys. She added to that later young girls in in, in, uh, elementary school. And then later she worked with middle school girls and high school girls. But I'm simply saying to you, no matter who you are, if God has saved you, God has equipped you for your work of ministry. And so what does he say? Very quickly, the Bible is profitable. The NIV says useful. How? First of all, for teaching. What to believe. What is right. Secondly, the Bible is profitable, useful for reproof. What not to believe. What is not right. Thirdly, the Bible is profitable for correction. How not to live. How to get right. And finally, the Bible is profitable for training in righteousness, and that is how to live and how to stay right. And again, I love what Spurgeon said. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. And D.L. Moody said, the Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. I have a friend by the name of Mike. He is an atheist. Several years ago, he came to the college where I was teaching and received permission to live with us for six months. He took uh, New Testament with me, took theology with me, took philosophy with a man named Jim Parker, took ethics, uh, went with us uh, on a mission trip to El Salvador, got shot at, by the way, came back and said, yeah, those people tried to, tried to kill me. And I said, well, yeah, you'd better get saved or you're going to go to hell. And so I, you know, said, I, I, I told you I didn't want you really to go, but he did. And uh, later he went with us uh, to, uh, to Israel. And I can still remember when we went to the garden tomb and he went in and came back out and he looked at me and I said, I told you he's not in there. He rose from the dead. And so he again said, ah, you know, you know, you're, you're crazy. You're a whack job. But anyway, we became really good friends. And later he wrote a book called Chapter and Verse, A Skeptic Revisits Christianity. Well, I remember the last time I saw him before he left, we were living in Dallas at that time, and he went back to to New York and to Manhattan where he lived. And uh, he came over to our house to have dinner. And uh, after we had dinner, uh, Charlotte was in the kitchen and the boys went outside to play. And as we were sitting there, I said, Mike, can I ask you a question? I said, you spent all this time with us, and I, I, I know you love us, but I know you also think that we're crazy and just, the, you know, we're just, we're just a bunch of crazy, ignorant, fundamentalists. I know you think that. And he said, oh, I don't think that. I said, yes, you do. And he said, you're right, I do. <laughs> but I do love you. And I said, I have no doubt that you love me. So I, I have a question. What's the bottom line? You know, from all that you've heard and learned from us, what would you say is the the bottom line? And he said, well, Danny, that's easy. It's the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus. And I said, well, you know, I would agree with you. But I'm curious, why would you say it's the resurrection? And listen very carefully, because even though he's an agnostic, uh, he thinks very well theologically. He said, well, Danny, here's the deal. If the resurrection really happened, then several things are self-evident. Number one, there's a God. You need a God to bring people back from the dead. Number two, Jesus is that God. Number three, that means the Bible is true. Because Jesus clearly believed that the Bible was true. And he said, number four, that means heaven and hell are real. And number five, Jesus makes all the difference. And I said, well, that is, I think, pretty good theology. And I said, all right, help me out. 
this, this dumb, backwoodsy fundamentalist, what do you think happened on the first Easter morning? And he looked at me and he said, well, you know, I don't know. He said, I admit there is a lot of evidence for an empty tomb. And there's like a lot of evidence that the disciples had experiences that they interpreted as bona fide appearances of Jesus. He said, Danny, I'm, a, I'm an agnostic and atheist. I don't even believe there's a God. And so he said, and I'll never forget it as long as I live, he said, I guess I'll just have to suspend my judgment for now. Now, I'm not a highly emotional person, but tears began to run down my face. And I said to my friend, I said, you know, Mike, I would hate to think that you will die and go to hell with suspended judgment. And then I got a little bold, and I said, you know, if I can just speak honestly, I don't think the problem is in your head. I think the problem is in your heart. I just don't think you want to bow your knee to Jesus. But folks, he is right. If Jesus rose from the dead, there is a God. He is that God. The Bible is true. Heaven and hell are real. He makes all the difference. That's why I love the Bible. My Jesus loved the Bible, and I'm going to love the Bible just like him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your infallible and inerrant word. We thank you that you have not left us uh, groping in darkness, but you have given us a bright, shining light, your word. And Father, I am convicted that we believe this is indeed a book from God, and yet how few of us have read all the way through it. How few of us read it, meditate on it, and study it every day. Lord, we'll read lots of other things, and we'll glue our eyes to our smartphone or our iPad or some other technological device, but Lord... May we glue our eyes to your infallible and inerrant word. For in it we find life, and in it we read the most wonderful, magnificent love story that has ever been written. So, Lord, we love your word. And, Lord, because we love your word, may we love you even more. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.